This program is made possible by the members and donors of the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, This Week in Blackness, The Rachel Maddow Show, On the Media, The Young Turks, Radio Dispatch, The Jimmy Dore Show, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, Mumia Abu-Jamal, The Black Agenda Report, Counterspin, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin. We turn now to St. Louis, Missouri, where protesters are demanding justice in a police shooting that killed an unarmed African-American teen. 18-year-old Michael Brown was shot to death in the suburb of Ferguson on Saturday afternoon after he was confronted by police. Witnesses say Brown was walking in the middle of the street with his friend when a police officer drove up and ordered them onto the sidewalk. Brown's friend, Dorian Johnson, described what happened. Uh, me and my uh, friend, we was walking down the street in the middle of the street. And we wasn't causing any harm to nobody. Uh, we had no weapons on us at all. We just walking, having a conversation. No cars were blowing at us or honking at us like we was uh, holding up traffic or anything like that. Uh, now, a police officer squad car pulled up. And when he pulled up, these was his exact words. He said, get the on the sidewalk, and we told the officer we was not but a minute away from our destination, and we was shortly be out the street. We was having a conversation, and uh, he went about his way for about one or two seconds as we continued to walk, and then he reversed his uh, truck, his car, and in a manner to where it almost hit us, and it blocked both lanes off the way he uh, turned his car. So. He pulled up on the side of us. He tried to thrust his door open, but we were so close to it that it ricocheted off us and it bounced back to him. And I guess that, you know, uh, got him a little upset. And at that time, he reached out the window. He didn't get out the car. He just reached his arm out the window and grabbed my friend around his neck and was trying to, as he was trying to choke my friend, and he was trying to get away, and the officer then reached out, and he grabbed his arm to pull him into the car. So now it's like the officer's pulling him inside the car, and he's trying to pull away. And at no time, the officer said that uh, he was going to do anything until he pulled out his weapon. His weapon was drawn, and he said, I'll shoot you, or I'm going to shoot. And in the same moment, the first shot went off. And we looked at him. He, he was shot, and it was blood coming from him. And we took off running. And as we took off running, I ducked and hid for my life because I was feared for my life. And I hid by the first car that I saw. My friend, he kept running. And he told me to keep running because he feared for me too. So as he was running, the officer uh, was trying to get out of the car. And once he got out the car, he... Uh, he pursued my friend, but his his weapon was drawn. Now, he didn't see any weapon drawn at him or anything like that, us going for no weapon. His weapon was already drawn when he got out the car. He shot again, and once my friend felt that shot, he turned around and he put his hands in the air, and he started to get down, but the officer still approached with his weapon drawn, and he fired several more shots, and my friend died. He didn't say anything to him. He just stood over, and he was shooting. By then, I was so afraid for my life, I just, I got up and I ran. That was Dorian Johnson describing how he saw a police officer shoot and kill his friend Michael Brown on Saturday. The St. Louis County Police ver version of events is sharply different. It claims Brown physically assaulted the officer involved and tried to reach for his weapon inside a police car. This is Police Chief John Belmar. Uh, allegedly uh, pushed the police officer back into the car where he physically assaulted the police officer. It is our understanding at this point in the investigation that within the police car there was a struggle over the officer's weapon. There was at least one shot fired within the car. 
Michael Brown lived in St. Louis, but was in Ferguson visiting his grandmother. He'd recently graduated from high school, was due to begin college courses this week. Just last week, he posted a haunting message on Facebook as he prepared to enter a new phase in his life, writing, quote, If I leave this earth today, at least you'll know I care about others more than I cared about my damn self. Protests began immediately after Michael Brown was shot. Police reportedly left his body laying in the street for several hours. Officers said they needed time to process the site and that the crowd that gathered made it hard for them to properly gather evidence. Tensions escalated Sunday as protesters took to the streets again and were met by riot police with dogs. A CNN reporter caught one officer referring to the demonstrators as animals. Racial tensions, nerves on edge. Even an officer we caught on camera gave in to his rage, calling protesters animals. Listen. Bring it. Michael Brown's parents discussed their son's killing at a news conference. This is Michael's father, Michael Brown Sr., and his mom, Leslie McSpadden. It was funny, silly. You make you laugh. Any problems that'll be going on or any situation, it wasn't nothing that he couldn't solve. Did he bring people back together? Yes. He's a good boy. He didn't deserve none of this. None of it. We need justice for our son. If you have any information, please, please give it to us. He didn't deserve that job. We need a police report, too. We need to know everything. We want everything. We want this done. You want to do this right? I don't want no violence. We don't want no violence. Because Michael wouldn't have wanted no violence. He, 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 he wouldn't have wanted none of that. None of it. None of it. He would want us to do it right. That's why we're doing it right. We're going to do it the right way. But we need justice for our son. That's my firstborn son. Anybody that know me knew how I felt about my son. I just wish I could have been there to help him. Anything. He didn't deserve that. Michael Brown's mother and father. The family is being represented by Benjamin Crump, the attorney for Trayvon Martin's family. Meanwhile, the unidentified officer who shot Brown has been put on administrative leave, and on Monday, the Justice Department announced a civil rights investigation. The FBI will continue to monitor the investigation being carried out by the St. Louis County Police Department. Sixty cow guns, lights, camera, action. Now, Reverend, now comes the ride in the loop, and then they asking how come all these dead black children, y'all motherfuckers, sound dumb. We've been shot to death, choked out, burnt up, smoked out, and they wonder why niggas feel safer in the dope house. Peaceful protesting, man, I've seen it. There was no doubt the cops started firing, and everybody broke out. Darren Wilson, um, was uh, was finally. Uh, labeled as uh, the man who murdered Mike Brown uh, and apparently he hasn't been in town for days so they were not releasing his name for his protection although he wasn't actually here uh, and then at the same time when they released his name they also released a story about Mike Brown uh, allegedly robbing a 
store for cigars, which apparently the gentleman that was with Mike Brown that we actually played his account of um, what happened when uh, they were shot at, uh, he has admitted that that was them, according to MSNBC. Uh, and even though, and it, it's been very annoying because so far uh, there has not been uh, any actual like. Like, like, as if people have been talking to each other, because like on MS, MSNBC.com, they uh, they said they spoke with the lawyers representing, and that he has admitted that that was him, Mike Brown and him uh, in the store, and then uh, on TV, everyone's still saying alleged, and I mean, even on MSNBC, Emily. Well, the the the, the issue here is that. It doesn't matter, right? No, I'm, but the it idea is that we're, we're, we're laying. I'm laying down the groundwork for what happened today, right? But I, it's it, it's not it's not even a question of whether or not it matters because obviously it doesn't matter. But this is what's being reported, and it's 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 again just just fucking madness. Um, so they so they they say that this happened. They uh, the, uh they then they uh, say that the robbery occurred. Uh, and they say that at the same time, basically uh, trying to lay out this uh, like to leave it to your imagination that. Uh, the robbery is the reason why Mike Brown was stopped, and then later on today, because it they was had, 15 minutes before the murder, uh, and then later on, it was it exactly 15 minutes. That's that what they it? said. They said 15 and, minutes. And before. then later on today, uh, apparently they found out uh, the, the chief admitted that that the officer who stopped Mike Brown and killed him didn't know about this robbery uh, uh, rec- uh, attempt, uh, and 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 that's another thing. So let's like how do how, how do we go? Okay, first of all. It does not fucking matter. Let's be as clear as possible that this did not matter in any shape, form, or fashion what happened to Mike Brown. Because Mike Brown was not in the midst of, uh, uh, of, of of taking anything. He was walking in the middle of the street. It was a jaywalking charge. That is what occurred. That is why they shot and killed him. Because they got into an altercation over a, um, a, a freaking jaywalking charge but even with what's happening the, the way the, the, the robbery it's like if you look on social media some people are referring to it as an armed robbery uh, if you actually look at the video it wasn't apparently they were they, they were they were being a, a, a dicks and they, and, they, and they took something from the store and 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 intimidated the uh, the dude it was more shoplifting and, and, and saying f you I'm out um, but that's not like literally on I've seen it people have been uh, tweeting at me oh so so armed robbery is is, is okay by your books it's like no I'm, I who said that at in any shape, form, or fashion. But one, it wasn't that. Two, it has nothing to do with the murder, and that is something that we that we can't get people to understand or get through their goddamn heads. Is that murder is still murder? If I murdered someone, but they the, yesterday they kicked the baby. Guess what? I still murdered them. So what? They kicked the baby. So the, the, the baby could be hemorrhaging, and that would be terrible, and that's a horrible thing. But if I don't know about it and I go murder them, I still murdered them. And I, 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 Aaron, could you tell me exactly how, like, because maybe, maybe I'm in, I'm in rage mode, so. Well, um, you know, uh, the Ferguson police are trying to uh, uh, win the court of public opinion, and they're using a lot of, well, it, frankly, they've been using a lot of old tactics <laughs> um, since uh, since this all happened, but they're using another old one where they're just like, well, you know, I mean, he's, I mean, he's black, there's crime around. I mean, there are, you know, this could be him. I mean, we think it's him, so he's dead now because he was, you know, crime. Because for hours, that was the main, soon as they announced it, and then they got the footage out, that was all. They had the stills, and then the footage came out, and that's all mainstream media has been playing. 
all day, right up until and I was about to say right up until the Chiefs said that that actually had nothing to do with it. But they were playing it after that. Like, like at this point, it's just in the ether now. Like so, like it's no pulling it back. And that was the goddamn plan. And they're sitting there asking the uh, the, 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 the lawyers and folks, like, do you think this was strategic? That's not that's not a question. It's not you can't ask that question. It is obviously exactly what they plan to do in order to uh, taint Mike Brown's name and to uh, uh, swing the, uh, the, the the court of public opinion back. Back over to their side, and it was—it's that's not asking that that disingenuous question isn't journalism. That's not that's not being reasonable. That is actively burying your face in the sand. What reporting would be is that this was released maliciously. Because that's what it was. There's no, there's no, there's no other uh, way of looking at this in another way. Like, oh, well, they might have released it because, because they said, well, the media asked for it. Well, I'm sorry, the media's been asking for the goddamn name of the murderer for a week. You guys didn't think that was reasonable to do, and you, like, you had, you had to be forced by the goddamn governor for this to go down. But now, oh, you gave out the, the footage because the media requested it. That's bullshit. For months, someone signing the name Lone Wolf had written a series of anonymous letters to the St. Louis County Police Chief. The letters started in December 2012, and they said that a powerful and well-connected lieutenant in that police department had been directing uniformed St. Louis County police officers that they should specifically arrest black people, that they should specifically target black people for arrest in specific shopping areas in southern St. Louis County. Lone Wolf, this whistleblower, said uh, that this lieutenant would make these claims out in the open at roll call. With, with the other officers present, the lieutenant would say things like, quote, let's have a black day. Let's today stop everybody with a tan. Let's stop everybody black at the mall. Quote, let's make the jail cells more colorful. According to Lone Wolf, this whistleblower, uh, among the uniformed officers who were being told this by their lieutenant at the start of their shifts at roll call, there were some black officers. Lone Wolf says the lieutenant dealt with that awkwardness by telling those black officers, don't worry, I don't mean you guys, you're the good ones. Lone Wolf, the sergeant uh, who was the whistleblower, uh, later told the St. Louis Post-Dispatch that he had waited months before summoning the courage to write those anonymous letters about the behavior of his lieutenant because, he said, this lieutenant had often bragged about being really well-connected, about knowing all the top commanders in the department. The whistleblower told the paper, quote, I had no intention to take the police department down. But these things had to be stopped. When a black person can't go shopping at a mall, it's wrong. This isn't 50 years ago. After the lieutenant was fired, uh, the police chief in St. Louis County also announced that he would also ask uh, for new data about race and policing in St. Louis County. He said he would contact a team of researchers at UCLA uh, in California to come in and study 
the St. Louis County arrest data to ensure that racial profiling wasn't occurring, to ensure basically that uh, police officers under this lieutenant's command weren't actually following his instructions to go fill up the jail cells that day with black people. It's interesting, though, getting more data about that sort of thing, getting more data about the risk that black people and white people are being policed differently, I mean, it never seems like a bad idea to have more information about something like that. But Missouri, interestingly, already does have a ton of information on that subject publicly available if anybody cares to look. It's no secret. And there's an interesting reason why. In the year 2000, the Missouri legislature had a particularly bad year. It was described as a caustic legislative session uh, in 2000 in the great state of Missouri. But one of the things they did pass by overwhelming margins in both the House and the Senate that year in Missouri was a bill about racial profiling, a bill specifically to collect data on race and policing. In August 2000, the then-Democratic Governor Mel Carnahan and the then Attorney General, who's now the Democratic Governor of Missouri, Jay Nixon, they were both personally on hand uh, for the public signing of this Missouri bill that, A, banned racial profiling by police in Missouri, but B, it also required that every police officer in the state would have to record information about the race of the person they were stopping every time they made a traffic stop. They have to do that in the state of Missouri by law since the year 2000. Every police department and every police officer in the state, it's mandatory reporting. And so there's this incredible data, incredible arrest-by-arrest arrest data made publicly available on the website of the Missouri Attorney General's office every year. And it's well laid out. You just click on the county, click on the town within the county, click on it year by year, and it tells you exactly what proportion of people stopped in every little town across the state are black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Native American, or other. And, and so in, say, the town of Ferguson, Missouri, which is in St. Louis County, you can get very specific data for each of the last 14 years about your racial likelihood of getting stopped by police for some reason in that particular town. And in that data, you can see over time remarkable consistency for the racial ratio of how people who live in that town are policed. I mean, this is official data from the state of Missouri. It's not some outside survey. It's not something that somebody comes in and does once every six years and hopes it's a snapshot. It's year by year by year, arrest after arrest after arrest, every town in the state by law. And it comes up with an incredibly comprehensive and detailed racial disparity index for policing, town by town. This is basically what they found for, for Ferguson. If there was no racial inflection at all to the rate at which people got stopped, if a racial group's proportion of the population was exactly the same as the proportion of stops by the police for that group, then that ratio would be 1.0. That, that would be totally neutral. So you see that marked with a gray line there. Here's what that ratio actually is for black people in Ferguson. See much, how much above 1.0 it is? That's how much more likely black people are to get stopped by police relative to their share of the population in Ferguson, Missouri. This is what it is for white people. Oh, look how far below that line it is. That's how much less likely you are to get stopped by police in Ferguson relative to white people's share of the population in that town. If you want to look at it another way, the most recent data for 2013, black people made up 67% of the population in Ferguson, but they made up 86% of the traffic stops. And that is a, a big disparity, just as a snapshot in time for a single year in a single town. But what is actually more amazing is how long it has consistently been like that in that town. 
and in towns across Missouri, frankly, but in that town specifically. I mean, that disparity in terms of how much more often black people are stopped by police in Ferguson, Missouri, is no secret. It's not spiking any one way or another. This is pretty much what it is. And the data about that, that proves it and shows it, has been publicly available data since back in 2000. We've had 14 years of knowing it's this way. When Mel Carnahan signed that law requiring this data to be collected and to be made publicly available, he said this at the time. He said, the statistical evidence that will be created will be objective evidence to the public as to the prevalence of this public, as to the prevalence of this problem. And it is. Right? It is. We have objective evidence as to the prevalence of this problem and the fact that it's never changing. It turns out sunlight itself doesn't actually disinfect anything. Knowing that the problem exists, publishing state data about the existence and persistence of the problem has done nothing itself to make the problem go away. We're not so ashamed when we look at those numbers that we do anything to change it. When, when St. Louis County had to fire a supervising lieutenant for telling uniformed officers at roll call at the start of their shifts that they should go out that day and make sure to arrest lots of black people, part of the response, in addition to firing that officer, was to say, let's get more data on this problem. Well, you know, yeah, the data is very helpful to have in order to talk about what the problem is so we can all agree on what the problem is. But having the data itself apparently does not fix anything. It doesn't happen statewide, didn't happen specifically in St. Louis County. Having the data, knowing the problem exists, isn't enough to get rid of the problem. And apparently, public protest and unflattering attention aren't enough to get rid of the problem either. I mean, it was a hullabaloo in St. Louis County when they had to fire the let's have a black day police lieutenant, right? But still, six months later, the NAACP in Missouri was filing a new federal civil rights complaint against the same police department, alleging further instances of racial disparity, including the way they were disciplining their own officers. The Justice Department also has an ongoing investigation into racial disparities in another part of justice in St. Louis County. They have an ongoing investigation into how St. Louis County provides legal representation to juveniles in the court system. In Ferguson, which again is two-thirds black, 67% black, there's no black member of the school board. There were protests last year when that school board, with no black people on it, decided to suspend the superintendent of schools in Ferguson, who does happen to be African-American. The community where 18-year-old Michael Brown was shot and killed by a police officer this weekend has a population that is two-thirds black. Of its 53 police officers, three of them are black. Two black women and one black man out of 53 officers. And knowing that and fixing that are not the same thing. Knowing that, having complete data that everybody agrees is the truth about that, apparently is not enough of an incentive for us to fix it. And that, though, is the inescapable context for the outrage over this young man's death in Missouri this weekend. And one protester told the New York Times this today. You have to begin with the frustration. Treatment of these communities is not equal. In white communities, the police truly protect and serve. In black communities, that is not the case.
Something wrong cause everybody ballin' Fender and police, soldier and police The H.O. and police, sound man and police A war, who make you read so far Is a while now, I know spot a swaddy in a lana bar Police have to run from police What is this from police? We don't know about the thing bizarre Right now, the force needs CPR It look like a boom, they are gone you went into the force, no sort to protect and serve. Your mother never with it, so with my shopper. After a week of escalating violence, the scene in Ferguson, Missouri on Thursday night was one of relative calm as protesters marched with police officers down the streets of the St. Louis suburb. Here's Captain Ronald Johnson of the Missouri Highway Patrol, now Ferguson Police Commander. And if that was my son, or that was my friend, uh, how would I feel or what my emotions would be and whatever my voice was I want to have the right to say what that voice is and that's what we're going to do here today and every day forward the tone stood in stark contrast to the days and nights of confrontation between demonstrators mostly peaceful but angry and police often in riot gear often seen holding military rifles on armored vehicles or firing off tear gas the cause of the conflict was the shooting death of an unarmed black teenager Michael Brown by a police officer on August 9th. Since then, Ferguson has been headline news, documented minute by minute via tweets, vines, and live streams. You may no longer be in the area. It is no longer a peaceful protest. They are firing rubber bullets and smoke grenades. Tremaine Lee, national reporter for MSNBC, has been reporting from Ferguson since Monday, August 11th. We spoke to him earlier this week and asked him about the view from what's being called Fergustan. Wednesday night was the worst night so far. Police officers hurled canisters of tear gas into the crowd. They also launched flash grenades, bang grenades. It was the kind of sight that I understand why people could look at this from around the world and around the country and say it looks like a war zone. And that's how it felt. People running and screaming, their eyes burning, some people vomiting. It's quite a sight, especially in a small city in the Midwest. And in fact, the Washington Post's Mark Berman wrote that the notion of something playing out on social media is a tiresome platitude at this point. But what's playing out in Ferguson, he said, seems different in that it evokes situations that have happened in other parts of the world. And actually... What we're seeing online does seem to smack of the live reporting during the Arab Spring, right? Citizens posting live streams, people who, by their tweeting on the ground, are becoming familiar names. This case, and at least my personal experience, has been an experience like no other. Everything is going viral. Because we haven't seen this level of, I'll call it rebellion, in a long time. Some young people say they've been waiting for a moment like this where they can express themselves, whether they do it peacefully or violently. The death of this young man in this community by a police department that they say has been harassing them for years, they finally now are saying enough is enough. And the consequences, we have burned out stores, we have a militarized police department that have shown up in mass and actually escalated the tension in this community, escalated the violence. But again, it's all playing out before our eyes, all playing out on Twitter and social media, and everyone seems to be participating and watching. 
Yeah, I mean, there's an alderman who I never would have had occasion to know about named Antonio French, who mm -hmm. seems to be everywhere all the time, uninflectedly mm -hmm. reporting the events as they happen. And then you have a reporter like Wesley Lowry of the Washington Post who's getting arrested and his last remark is, tweet this. <laughs> Wesley Lowry is a colleague. He's a great young journalist. And so we were at uh, one of the press conferences on Monday, and he's firing away on his cell phone, tweeting about it. And the people have a hunger because that's where they're getting their information. But going back to that alderman, he's been here. He's been tweeting and covering the story in a way that the local news media hadn't even been covering it. And so as he's getting hauled away to jail, they're tweeting about it. As Wesley is getting hauled away to jail, and his last words saying, you know, tweet about it, tweet it out. It's a different world, as we all know, and especially folks in the media or have been following the media. Years ago, there was the, the Gen 6 case in Gen Louisiana, where a group of young black teenagers, high school students, were charged with attempted murder for beating up one of their young white peers. People from around the country amassed one of the first times that this young generation mobilized, but we still weren't using Twitter or Facebook that much. Then you jump years later to 2012, to the Trayvon Martin case, when it was all over social media and it expanded and grew. People were using online petitions. People were tweeting and Facebooking. But the images emerging from here in Ferguson, Missouri, are unlike anything we've ever seen because people in the Trayvon Martin case were gathering by the thousands in an open field, pretty much contained. But here, as the police seem to be beating back a force of mostly peaceful protesters and their tear gas canisters are flying in and you're seeing these images in real time, I was on one side street, and I watched as a man was going to open his front door with his keys. So as he's walking across the front lawn, there was a police officer with his rifle trained on him following him to his front door. All these images are now being blasted across the country. problem is a kid is getting killed 20 every 28 hours by cops or by vigilantes. Enough is enough. How many times are you going to shoot unarmed black people, right? So Brittany Cooper takes it up to a whole nother level. She literally wrote a post called In Defense of Black Rage. She's a professor at Rutgers. And boy, it is interesting. And I like it because she went further than I've seen really anyone go in a long time. And it may, shook me up and like, wow, why isn't there such a strong voice on, on the left side like this? I mean, you see incredible shouting from the right side. Well, she, she had enough. And she said, look, quote, I refuse to condemn the folks engaged in these acts because I respect black rage. I respect black people's right to cry out, shout, and be mad as hell that another one of our kids is dead at the hands of the police. She said, the police mantra is to serve and to protect. But with black folks, we know that's not the mantra. The mantra for many, many officers when dealing with black people is apparently kill or be killed. So there she's pointing out that officers often go into a community as uh, apparently based on the, what they shouted to the protesters uh, in Ferguson. And they're outsiders. 
you know, 70% of Ferguson is African American. Only three out of the 53 police officers in Ferguson is African American. The other 50 are, you know, are white and they come up, they don't live in the city. They come out from outside and they view the city as hostile territory. So their attitude is, I'm not going to let them kill me. And they've already made their assumptions about the community. The community is dangerous. They're not there to protect and serve the community. They're there because the community is dangerous, right? And and she's right that Ferguson, Missouri is by by a long stretch not the only place in America where the cops view the community they're supposed to be serving in that way. She explains, when will we be honest enough to acknowledge that the police have more power than the ordinary citizen? They're supposed to, and with power comes more responsibility. Yesterday we were talking about how I overheard somebody saying, oh my God, Michael Brown might have touched or slapped away at a cop's hand. So, hey, I got news for you, that's assault. Now, he's a regular citizen. That's literally a slap on the wrist. If you take the cop's word for it, which didn't come out until many, many days later, right? So, before they didn't say anything as they were formulating their story. And on the other hand, a kid is executed in the street with his hands up in the air, right? But... No, the onus put on by most of the media and most people in the country is on the kid who got executed. Ah, how dare you slap his hand? How dare you do that? That's assault! Well, how dare he execute him in the street? Yes, it's right to be mad about that, especially because we give the cops guns. We say, hey, use those guns on our behalf, on behalf of the citizens you're here to protect and serve. And when you don't do that and you use it against the citizens, well, then we're right to be mad. Brittany Cooper continues, why are police calling the people of Ferguson animals and yelling at them to bring it, which is what they did uh, in the protests? Because those officers in their riot gear with their tear gas and dogs want a justification for slaughter. But inexplicably in that moment, we turn our attention to the rioters, the people with less power, but justifiable anger and say, you are the problem. No, a cop killing an unarmed teenager who had his hands in the air is the problem. Anger is a perfectly reasonable response, so is rage. I love how unapologetic Professor Cooper is. She continues, no, I don't support looting, but I question a society that always sees the product of the provocation and never the provocation itself. I question a society that values property over black life. But we are the dispossessed. We cannot count on the law to protect us. We cannot count on police not to shoot us down in cold blood. We cannot count on politics to be a productive outlet for our rage. That's a really important point because she's saying that, look, you want me to handle it in a way, you want all of us to handle it in a way where you have a productive outlet. Go, well, go through politics. And what has politics gotten us? Well, not very much, right? Recently, this continues to happen week after week, day after day. And every time we're told you're the problem and, and nothing gets done. So she's not saying loot, she says very clearly, do not loot. But at the same time, why don't we actually address what caused the looting in the first place? What caused the anger in the first place? And what was justifiable? Of course, once you say that, again, Republican heads explode. How dare you? It's never justifiable. I don't care. And that's it. I'm going to use it as an excuse to never address the problem in the first place.
Again, this is from the essay Itemizing Atrocity. Uh, the authors write, the problem is not just the excess, yet one seems to get the sense, yet one gets the sense that the only way to generate a modicum of concern or empathy for black people is to raise the stakes and to emphasize the extraordinary nature of the violations and the suffering. To circulate repeatedly in the spectacular in hopes that people consider the everyday. It's a fool's errand because it often doesn't garner the response desired or needed, and it leaves black people in the position of having to ratchet up the excess to get anyone to care or pay attention. What's next, some might ask. What could be, what more could happen after Ferguson and the hypermilitarization of the police? A bomb dropped on blacks in the United States? That has already been done decades ago. To the point, spectacle as the route to empathy means that atrocities itemized need to happen more often or get worse to become more atrocious each round in hopes of being registered. So there's, there's a sort of, uh, natural, almost, societal tolerance that get that gets built up to the spectacle and so they have to get ratcheted up mm -hmm. and i just think the very very cogent point of reminding people that in the 80s the a local police department bombed a, a home full of black people including women and children killing many of them and that's not that's not like a, oh, in 2014, did the police have too much uh -huh. military-grade weapons? And that, of course, is the move bombing in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. They say the more things change, the more they stay the same. Keep you so confused. Yeah, but that's old news. It was a civil war. What's up with less is more. Go try at the store. They left you out the door Keep you so confused Yeah, but that's old news Anything to say about the militarization of the police department, anybody? Yes. Yes. Uh, I think... <laughs> I mean, I think if Eisenhower were alive today, I think the first thing he would do is amend his final speech and say that the military-industrial complex will also come for community policing. And if you want an example of that, go and look. At, there's a book about the Glock firearm that talks about how uh, that firearm manufacturer basically Jedi mind-tricked every police force in this country into buying Glocks. And they happily did it. Yes. And so what's happened is, is that police forces have become pawns of a military-industrial complex. complex. Yes. So those cops in Ferguson, Missouri, were driving what they call a Marvac. I think that's how you pronounce it. Yes. Anyway, it's designed to go over landmines. It's, a, it's a, you can go over a landmine with it. Wait, a landmines or land mimes? No, landmine. Oh, okay. I thought both. you were talking about the circus performers. Both. I know. No, 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 no. no, no which both. are equally just as offensive. No, yeah. they, it doesn't have protection against those. Okay. Uh, yeah. No, no one does. No, you could perform <laughs> Del Arte in front of them, and you're so it, it won't break through the invisible walls that they built. Yeah. I don't know. I thought that guy in the LeBron James T-shirt might have sort of mined the uh, the the intersection there. Oh, I see yeah, what you're saying. It's a, it's a good possibility. Let, let me just yeah. say, so the Marbac didn't exist before the Iraq War. It was developed during the Iraq War specifically to deal with IEDs. Really? That is how intense a machine this thing is. You have, you know, a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's good. That is amazing, right? And so now it went that quickly from the battlefield to the to yes, mainstream. because what happens, and this is oh, this is so infuriating, but basically when uh, arms dealers, arms designers, build a gun, build a tank, build whatever. They are selling it to the government almost 
at cost. Oh, okay. Okay. So what they do is they immediately turn around and see if they can find a civilian market for it. That's why the Hummer became a thing. That's why uh, handguns such as the Beretta M9 became so popular in the civilian market. Really? And the reason is, is specifically because that development costs a lot of money. They're recouping as much profit as they can out of those designs. But, you know, it's not... I mean, so, uh, I, I, get, I get that the development costs some amount of money. There, this is not a cancer drug that needs to be taken through years <laughs> of trial. I mean, the Beretta 9, it was not completely dissimilar from the Beretta 8. I know that wasn't it, no, but, I mean, it's still gun technology that was already kind of in place. You're absolutely right. I think they should get rid of the Beretta 9, and that's the name of that, too. <laughs> You're mixing Telesavalis, I think. You know, I just want to uh, highlight, I was reading... Uh, Who loves you, baby? <laughs> I was reading this article that's highlighting um, the, the different ways that we're militarizing our country. Yeah. And uh, I thought this was really interesting because they highlighted how um, a recent New York Times article by Matt Apuzo reported that in the Obama era, a police departments have received tens of thousands of machine guns... <laughs> Machine guns. Nearly 200,000 uh, ammunition magazines, thousands of pieces of camouflage, which yes. we're seeing in Missouri, yes. and night vision equipment, and hundreds night of vision. silencers. Silencers! Armored Why do cars need silencers? And aircraft. And they go on to say, the result is that the police agencies around the nation possess military-grade equipment, turning officers who are supposed to fight crime and protect community into what looks like invading forces from an army and military style police raids have increased in recent years with one count putting the number at 80,000 such raids last year. And what they ultimately are doing are they're transforming neighborhoods into war zones. Yes. And these neighborhoods hmm, turn out to be people of color. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial wondering what it feels like to have a mine-resistant vehicle on the streets of your town, I give you a YouTube video of two dudes from Saginaw, Michigan. Holy shit, dude. Super armored, dude. Damn, look, he doesn't want anybody to see him in there. Dude, you can't even see him. Damn. That's crazy. Saginaw <laughs> County Sheriff, dude. It looks cool, dude. Look how, look how big these tires are compared to our... It's taller than... It's, dude. It's awesome. Now, now, to be fair, to be fair, that is exactly how they reacted when a Chipotle first opened there. But, but the point is, listen carefully as one of them suddenly realizes something. Damn, dude, that's f***ed up. Why? Has our city gotten that f***ing bad? Here's the thing, no, it hasn't got that bad. Because unless you live in downtown Kabul, 
There is no practical need for anything like that in your town. Just ask the people that it came from. The Army itself, actually, in a newsletter uh, a few months ago, uh, recommended against uh, using MRAPs even at U.S. military bases. You know, on paved streets in the United States, they're, they're actually unsafe. They tear up the streets. They have a high rollover potential. Exactly. The only vehicle that should be tearing up the streets of Saginaw is Chad's souped-up Honda Civic. <laughs> dude! Dude, my car is sick, dude! The police are not soldiers. So why, in this photo from Ferguson, are they wearing fucking camo? They are northwest of St. Louis, not northwest of the Amazon. If, if they want to blend in with their surroundings, they should be dressed as a dollar store. And, and also, also, look, look in the photo where their guns are pointed. If you were actually in the military, you would know that you are not supposed to do that. In the military, we're trained on something called escalation of force, uh, which basically means the only time that you're really going to point a weapon directly at someone is when you're re ready to pull the trigger. And instead of that, we've seen in Ferguson that uh, police are just wandering around uh, with their weapons up at all times, pointing them at, at people that obviously didn't pose a threat. Well, well, they don't currently pose a threat, but you know, it's really all about what they might do. Now, they could, for instance, join the police, be given a gun they're not trained to use properly, and then wander around pointing it at people, that would be f***ing terrifying. The point, the point here is... The point is... If you are a cop in the United States, you should dress for the job you have, not the job you want. Because if you have all this equipment, it's going to go to your head. Thanks in part to this kind of access to military hardware, there has been a massive rise in both the number and the use of police department SWAT teams. The number of SWAT raids have gone up by 1400% since the 1980s. An estimated 50,000 now take place every year. Just keep that clip in mind when I tell you that 79% of SWAT deployments are now for executing search warrants, and most of those were for drug investigations. So yes, if you are getting high in your dorm room right now, you are not paranoid, there is a SWAT team outside, and they are coming to get you. All of which, all of which brings us back to this week and to Ferguson. So how do you improve things there? Well, you could demilitarize the police force to stop things looking like this, but that would just change the optics. The substance of the problem would still be there, as was embodied by a police officer on the streets of Ferguson this week, who was dressed entirely normally. Bring it! The phrase, bring it, you fucking animals, is barely acceptable during a zoo escape. It's, it's not even acceptable in the restaurant in Mary Poppins where penguins are waiters. Bring it, you fucking animal! Hey, don't treat them like that. They'll, they'll piss in your soup. They'll, they'll piss in your soup. And, and you'll deserve it. That kind of statement betrays an inability to see the citizens of Ferguson as individuals and instead treats them as a threatening whole. And that is a top-down problem, because last night, this is how the governor of Missouri decided to try and rebuild trust between the police and the community. I signed an order declaring a state of emergency and ordering the implementation of a curfew in the, impact, in the, impact, in the curfew in the impacted area of Ferguson. Oh, perfect. 
So you took a community tired of being treated as criminals and imprisoned them all in their own houses for a night. And in doing so, employed the tone of a pissed off vice principal trying to restore order at an assembly. But if we are going to achieve justice, we must first have and maintain peace. This is a test. The eyes of the world are watching. That is profoundly patronizing. Look, let's see if you can all remain quiet for 20 minutes, and then we'll see if you can all go and play outside. If even the governor can't distinguish between the good and the bad elements of the community, and has decided to punish everyone equally, then that should go both ways. I know the police love their ridiculous, unnecessary military equipment, so here's another patronizing test. Let's take it all away from them, and if they can make it through a whole month without killing a single unarmed black man, then, and only then, can they get their fucking toys back. War and false peace. The scenes of the last few days in the town of Ferguson, Missouri, have pulled the cover off of how blacks and cops interact in modern-day America. In words and deeds, it reveals a state of war, with both riddled with bone-chilling fear. For fear is ever-present in any war, no matter who is better armed. Fear is also irrational and so strong that it powers and fuels reactions once bred deep in the bone. The shooting of an 18-year-old youth, unarmed and surrendering. The repeated shooting of the youth. The resultant mass protests at his death. And the staging of an array of military material to threaten and intimidate people who dare to protest. Unarmed people marching in the street with signs were opposed by cops armed with the weapons and tools of war. Armored personnel carriers, automatic submachine guns, sniper rifles, aimed at dark citizens who are allegedly citizens of the state, citizens they are sworn to serve and protect some service. But the central issue surrounding the killing of 18-year-old Mike Brown has not yet been reported. Remember, they called him Big Mike, and therein lies the tale. Norm Stamper, a former beat cop, and former police chief in Seattle, Washington, wrote in his 2005 book, Breaking Ranks, the following. Simply put, white cops are afraid of black men. We don't talk about it. We pretend it doesn't exist. We claim color blindness. We say white officers treat black men the same way they treat white men. But that's a lie. In fact, the bigger, the darker the black man, the greater the fear. The African-American community knows this. Hell, most whites know it. Yet even though 
It's a central, if not the, defining ingredient in the makeup of police racism. White cops won't admit it to themselves or to others. There it is, cut and dried. The cop, Darren Wilson, saw Big Mike and felt in the pit of his gut mind-numbing fear. The same could be said of hundreds of cases every year all across America. It may be disturbing, but that doesn't mean it ain't true. It's real, and it doesn't bode well for the future. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. I'll fight the man that turns on me if I must fight or die. I will fight for justice and laws I can abide. I'll try to fight with courage to always give my best. For I must fight the fear itself that grows inside my breast. Fear is a villain, and he grips you late at night. He'll catch you when your back is turned. He's watching you. So don't be afraid of the dark. Don't let those dark and lonesome voices speak to you. Don't be afraid of the dark. Just hold your head up high, and that will see you through. The brave and besieged people of Ferguson, Missouri, have already caused serious complications for the U.S. national security state by virtue of simply standing their ground in their own small city. The demonstrators have forced the local, county, and state police to show their true, thoroughly militarized colors. Ferguson's righteous agitators and rebellious black youth have succeeded in pinning down in one small space the armed forces of racist repression in full view of the corporate and the people's media, so that the whole world can bear witness to the truth of what another generation proclaimed nearly half a century ago, that in the black community the police are an army of occupation. The military character and mission of the police is more clear today than when the Black Panther Party and others sounded the alarm in the 60s. Back then, the first SWAT teams were staking out sniper positions on city streets, and the Federal Law Enforcement Assistance Administration had only just begun to funnel millions of dollars in surveillance technology, guns, body armor, and all manner of lethal equipment to local and state police departments across the country. The term mass black incarceration had not yet been coined, but it was only a matter of time before a permanent militarized police offensive against rebellion-prone ghettos would cause unprecedented numbers of black prisoners to flow into the greatest gulag in the history of the world. White America perceived that it was at war with black people who no longer knew their place, and so places of confinement were made for them, fortified dungeons to house millions. Since America tells itself and the rest of the world that it does not make war on its own citizens and that there is a sharp and constitutionally defined separation between the military and civilian functions of the state, the war against black people had to be called something else, a war on drugs, or simply a war on crime. 
Therefore, it was not long before the words crime and drugs and black came to mean the same thing, since really there was only one war going on, and it continues still. The young people of Ferguson and Greater St. Louis and all of urban, suburban, and rural black America understand perfectly well that war is being waged against them. The powers that be every day of the year make it crystal clear to black people, especially to black men, that an overwhelming and lethal force is prepared to crush them for any reason or for no reason at all. This is the definition of a war of terror. It requires the aggressor to engage in constant and ever-escalating displays of disciplined force, which is what militaries do. By refusing to disperse, the black people of Ferguson have compelled the police to flaunt their military nature and mission before the eyes of the world. The American national security state is embarrassed, but it will take a social transformation that is a revolution to disarm the beast. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Glenn Ford. Another uh, aspect of the essay is this idea that this oft-repeated talking point over the past few weeks about Ferguson that suddenly now the police have been militarized and uh, and the, the problem with the police behavior is that they have been militarized and that they're indistinguishable from soldiers and and you say that that framing militarization as as the problem is is extremely limited. So can you talk about about that and the problems with uh, with overemphasizing this militarization as the singular problem of policing? Absolutely. Um, again, you know, the importance of history and context can't be overstated in our conversations that are rooted in uh, discussions about race and in particular in this country, discussions about blackness. Um, and once again, we find ourselves dealing with a lot of people who are new to the concept of seeing police officers in the streets. Uh, with riot gear and tanks, um, and that the focus becomes on just that, the concept of the tools of terror and war, the weapons of war, which we should be concerned about, which actually has become worse over time in terms of the numbers and how often people rely on it and use it for what kinds of things. The problem, though, is that when you are constantly focusing on the excess, you really don't concentrate on the ordinary and the mundane, which is already terrible and terrible for people on a regular basis, you know, um, having impact on people's life, livelihood, and their ability to survive within this country. So what we're saying is, okay, yes, militarization exists of the police. It has existed, you know, on the police side. And I cite, um, uh, we cite a piece uh, written 
uh, I mean, a, a rap song by Toddy T um, from the ni- early 1980s called Bataram. And the Bataram, um, it was really interesting because uh, Ice Cube actually um, tweeted a photo of himself uh, standing on a Bataram. Uh, with somebody else, right? And, and this was in the 1980s. And, and the Bataram was basically like a tank that was used within urban spaces and particularly within uh, a lot of housing projects on the West Coast to flatten people's houses during the quote-unquote beginnings of the war on drugs in the country. Um, and so the concept of a militarized police force has been here. I, I would also say to people, uh, even white folks should be able to remember uh, the RNC in Minnesota. The remember the tear gas in the streets and people like literally, you know, bowling over the militarized equipment that was there at the time, the, you know, military style weapons that were deployed against people during that convention. I don't, I, you know, I think we have, our, our memories are too short and we also are focusing on we want to focus on the spectacle. We want to focus on the thing that is for the moment like shocking but we should be shocked every single day by just the ordinary, mundane brutality and violence embedded and endemic within policing in America. sight of police in riot gear in the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, have led some to question the appropriateness of using heavy-duty military equipment for domestic policing. The New York Times reported on this angle of things on August 15th in a piece that outlined how the federal government pays for things like the Bearcat armored truck rolling through Ferguson, and noting that St. Louis County has received relatively little military equipment compared to other urban areas. This all can be traced, the Times explains, to September 11th, when, quote, authorities in Washington declared that local police departments were on the front lines of a global war on terrorism, close quote. And it adds that, terrorism being exceedingly rare, all that money and gear is not appropriate to the threat. This is followed, though, by a comment from Frank Salufo from something called the Homeland Security Policy Institute, who says, quote, you couldn't say that back then with as much certainty as you can say that now, close quote. And the story buttresses this idea that, quote, after September 11th, few people asked whether the police would use the equipment against protesters, close quote, with his comment, by and large, I don't recall an outcry of any sort historically along these lines. Presumably, if the paper recalled any such outcry, they would mention it. But as you might guess, even if you don't remember, there were indeed people warning about the use of military equipment against protesters. Fair was among those talking about it, along with other frightening civil liberties developments, just weeks after the September 11th attacks. The problem, of course, was that the people raising the outcry were not the sort that corporate media generally go to or even acknowledge. It's a lot easier to pretend that nobody said anything if you have a habit of not listening. Circumstances from the past can't hold you in their grasp when you're on a mission. 
And if anybody tries to tell you otherwise, don't listen. The argument that you can't argue with here, the rhetoric side of this, right, that, that you would know if you took the courses that there are shutdown places in an argument. And the shutdown place on the argument about this militarized equipment for the police is, yeah, but it saves lives. You want police officers to go into these situations less protected. Boom. What if it even saves one child? Boom. Those are argument shutdown points. Takes the debate and shuts it down because, of course... None of us wants to, you know, see an officer get hurt, right? And you can argue all day long against the if it only saves one child's life argument, but then the comeback, and it's a good one, is, well, what if it's your child? Bingo, right? Game over. I'll let you all go Nazi to save my kid's life. Sorry. <laughs> argument over, right? Um, they can be the Gestapo if it saves my kid's life, but you can't run a society that way because all the rest of our children will be grievously affected if you do. The question is, you know, how do you get around the idea that to demilitarize the police might mean you lose more police, right? That's that's the overriding argument here. And it's, it's the logical reason, if you're a pessimist, to say this is why it's not going to change. Because at this point in time, there is no argument, no counter-argument that's good enough to combat that. There's a, and you know, the funny thing is too, is that, is that a lot of police officers who are retired now see this very clearly. Are, they're some of the biggest critics of all this, right? Because they remember doing much of the same stuff without this equipment, right? They, in their minds, they're thinking, okay, here's how you handle that. And by the way, I've heard some of these guys say that because we have all this modern stuff, right, this war surplus, for lack of a better word, we've allowed, they've allowed, some of the traditional police officer skills to erode that a lot of these old-timers say, well, you know, this is how we would have handled it 30 years ago, blah, blah, blah. Although I know a few old-timers who would have said, oh, 30 years ago, we take them behind a building and beat the hell out of them. You just don't know, right? I've seen all sides of the police officers, and I've seen them from all sides. Uh, they're people, okay? That's and, and a lot of them are really good people and really brave people, but they're people. And sometimes you get these departments. This should be pointed out, too, and we've talked about this before. I mean, L.A.'s Signal Hill Police Department was famous, right, for a generation. But you get this culture that develops in some of them, especially some of the smaller ones, where, you know, four or five significant officers can color the whole feel of a place. And slowly but surely, people who feel differently drop out and leave. And the people who stay are the people that either think the same or can be, you know, convinced to think the same. And you sometimes get these police departments where the locals, like maybe these people in Ferguson, will say for years, you have no idea what this police force is like. You have no idea what it's like to live under here. And then somebody gets shot six times, regardless of the circumstances, and boom things go up in flames. And then the state comes in with flashbang grenades and tear gas and armored personnel vehicles and they point their high-powered weapons at the crowd, I'd be pissed too. I'd be pissed too. I'm sorry. Listen, police officers, you have a hard job. You ought to be fired if you point an automatic weapon at a crowd. You ought to be fired. I have an AP article here by, um, this is by, this is Tammy, I Dulla and Eric Tucker from August 16, 2014. And in it, you know, they give sort of the, the counter view, right, which is important to give. I think they, they interview Los Angeles County Sheriff's Chief Bill McSweeney, right, and he heads the detective division, it says. And he says, quote, 
Is it smart for them, meaning the police in Missouri, to use that stuff, meaning the militarized gear, and perhaps look like soldiers from Iraq going into a place? Is that smart or over the top? I'd say generally that's smart. Now, if you use that every time a guy is writing a bad check, well, then that gets rather extreme. And then he says, and this is the good point, right? Quote, it's tempting to say, shouldn't we wear these things? Shouldn't we approach this as if we could get shot, he said? How do you say no to that question? End quote. Exactly right. How do you say no to that question? But that question has gotten us into a position where the amount of goods transferred through the government program that allows the war gear to filter down to your local law enforcement, which was doing $1 million of transfer in 1990, did $450 million in transfers last year. And as um, somebody quoted in this AP article, um, David Harris, a police expert at the University of Pittsburgh Law School, said, quote, Every police force of any size in this country has access to those kinds of weapons now. It makes it more likely to be used and is an escalation all by itself, end quote. Unless you think they only bring this stuff out, you know, for the important situations like giant riots, the story says, quote, in Louisiana, masked police in full body armor carrying AR-15 assault rifles raided a nightclub without a warrant, looking not for terrorists, but for underage drinkers and fire code violations. Officers in California train using the same counterinsurgency tactics as those that are used in Afghanistan. End quote. Again, I don't know how you get this stuff out of the hands of the police officers overall. I'm not even sure sometimes you would want them out of the hands. But I would say this, they are frighteningly uncontrolled, all right? If you want to say that, you know, under circumstances A, B, C, or D, we can unlock the vault and pull out the armored personnel carrier and the military gear, we have a hostage situation down at the mall, okay, pull out the gear, right? Not, we think there might be a little weed growing in that person's backyard. Throw a flashbang grenade in the room, you know, do a no-knock and go in there before they can dispose of the evidence. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You shouldn't get to use the tank for that. And if you say, well, listen, that guy could have a gun and an officer could go down. What is the price that we pay to not look like we have the army out there on the street? I mean, come on. I mean, you may call it a public relations move when there are lives at stake, Dan, but come on. If you have the army patrolling the streets, you can say all day long that it's totally benign. But if you think the people in Ferguson, Missouri are going to look at you like the friendly policemen on the street corner instead of the armed occupiers, you're deluding yourselves. If you look like armed occupiers and you keep arresting the locals, how do you think the kids growing up in that community are going to see you? Now, you may say, listen, Dan, I'm not here to be liked. I'm here to enforce the laws. Yes, well... Do you enforce the laws looking like you work for the people in that community? Or do you enforce the laws looking like you work from some outside entity that the people in that community see themselves as victims of? I mean, truthfully, the time when the situation de-escalated and got the most peaceful was when the helmets came off and the guns came down and the police mingled with the crowd, right? I hate to sound all kumbaya about it, but... That kind of says we're on the same side, whereas the other approach kind of says you're on your side, I'm on my side, and I have my guns, and they're pointed at you. Oh, and by the way, your taxes pay my salary. I'm sorry. There's something, there's a total disconnect there, and I'm sorry that the politicians are so gutless about it. 
you want to tweet that you're against that, that that shocks you, then you get up there and you make the very courageous and difficult to make argument that we might lose more police officers if we don't have tanks rolling up on every potential call that might potentially have a gun, but that there's a value to that. We are protecting the civil nature of our society. That's worth something, folks. And listen, I can understand if an officer thinks to themselves, Dan, you're crazy. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put my life in danger so that you can feel good about some PR move. That's fine. My suggestion to you would be, maybe you should find another line of work. Stories like the killing of 18-year-old Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and, and, and the strife and the fury that followed, these stories, they leave a mark, right? They leave an impression on everybody who's part of it and on all of us who have watched this happen over these past two weeks. Stories like this cast a shadow. And yes, the sun rises, the next thing happens, the news is not always going to be about Ferguson, Missouri, but the questions and tensions and inequities that were so vividly drawn in Ferguson, they were there before this crisis happened. They're still there now. And we could see them nationally all of a sudden because of this bright light on Ferguson and the killing of that young man and the burning uproar of the community in response. But in the absence of that bright light, those things are still there. And they're not just there in Ferguson. I mean, judging from around the, the, the response around the country, you, know, you also know those questions and tensions wherever you live. All week in the office this week, we've been passing around pictures from vigils and protests in Atlanta and Austin and San Francisco and Iowa City, hands up Philadelphia, hands up in Oklahoma City, in Greensboro, North Carolina, and Houston, and Chicago, all over the country. These questions and tensions and inequities are everywhere because they've outlasted our best intentions of fixing them. As Ferguson prepares for Mike Brown's funeral on Monday, and as Staten Island marches this weekend for Eric Garner, and as the grand jury gets ready for second day of evidence, and the Department of Justice weighs its civil rights claims, as time moves on and the angle of the light changes, are we going to keep seeing this as clearly as we have these past two weeks? How long can we keep seeing this, and will it be long enough to start making it better? Monday is Mike Brown's funeral in St. Louis. Thanks for this number one. I wanted to finish today with our activism segment of the day. Now that you're informed and angry, here are a few things you can do about it. Today's activism, campaigns for Mike Brown and Ferguson. 
Social media, citizen reporters, writers, and media of color and conscience have said it. Darren Wilson murdered Mike Brown. There's little to add to this call to action. You already know what's happening in Ferguson and communities of color around the country under siege by police outfitted in weaponry, not even distributed to our military. So I'm simply pointing you to the Spaceship Dreaming blog, which has become the go-to resource for aggregating information, action, campaigns, etc., dedicated to supporting Mike Brown's family and the Ferguson community. You can find the Campaigns for Mike Brown and Ferguson post on WordPress or by clicking the link in the segment notes. Among the efforts listed are the Michael Brown Memorial Fund, the Bail and Legal Fund for those arrested during Ferguson anti-police demonstrations, the Dream Defenders Teespring Store, Operation Help or Hush, and Feed the Students of Ferguson, an effort to help those children who rely on meals provided in school while the school year is indefinitely delayed. You can also donate directly to the St. Stephen's Food Pantry, donate items through the St. Louis Urban League, and sign petitions demanding federal protections from police violence and misconduct. You can also call for the St. Louis County Prosecutor Bob McCullough, who many feel is too close with the local police to be impartial during grand jury proceedings, to be pulled from the Mike Brown investigation so that he may be replaced with an independent special prosecutor. More than a quarter of a million dollars has been raised via GoFundMe in support of the officer enjoying a paid vacation for killing Mike Brown. The supportive comments are predictably racist and reinforcing of white supremacy ingrained in our nation's infrastructure. Whether or not you are able to contribute to the efforts in Ferguson, you are able, because we are all able, to push back on the comments and rhetoric you hear in your daily life. Don't ignore the racist joke. Don't ignore the ignorance. Be bold enough to post support for Ferguson and the Brown family on your pages and feeds. We can't erase centuries of white supremacy, but we can do our part to change the communities in which we live. That's it for today. Thanks again for listening. Stay awesome. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past Stories and forget who it is before.